0: but interactive with the Lord is to stop right now and and to ask the Lord personally Lord will you just speak to me because that's I, I pray that's why you're here because you want him to speak to you and so just just ask him in the name of Jesus will you speak to me the word that I need to hear right now for my life I'll pray and then we'll we'll look at the word together so just just ask him ask him to speak to you this morning Are more desperate than than we realize, far more frail than we realize, far more in need of grace to know and to go beyond what we can touch or what we can see with our eyes. To know that our history, our history did not begin when we were born, that our history began when you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that our history doesn't end when we die. um, but lives on and will live on in a new creation, that our history is from everlasting to everlasting, that we are a part of something so big, so majestic, so all-pervasive, um, that our little tiny decades of life really can't even compare. So I just ask that you would blow the doors off of our minds and help us to understand just how great you are and to see our lives and ourselves within that, within that grand plan. And I do pray with, with my family here that you would, um, you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand and eyes to see what you have for each one of us this morning as a result of our gathering here, our worshiping you, our praying to you, and hearing you speak to us through your word. And I pray this in the name of our, our high priest and king, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, one of the... One of the cool things that my, my dad did for me and my little sister uh, when we were young is he taught us how to play chess. Um, he gave us a chess board, and we probably were six and seven years old when he taught us about the king and how the king moves and how the queen moves and the bishops move and the knights move and the rooks move and, of course, last but not least, the pawns move and told us a little bit of strategy, and, and my sister would and I would actually play chess for hours, trying to outwit each other and try to maneuver each other. And she's two and a half years younger than I was, and yet she would beat me probably half the time. Um, and one of the reasons is because I tend to, when I play chess, I tend to be overly uh, dependent upon the queen and my knights, which means I expose them to danger. And um, so sometimes she would take my queen and pretty much the, uh, the game would be over. Uh, and in addition to that, or I should say um, with that, I had a kind of a neglect for the importance of, of the smallest little players on the, on the board, which is, uh, were, were the pawns. I'm so grateful for that game. I mean, it required no batteries, no electronics, no software, and there was no connection to the Internet, just a little board with some pieces. But, boy, did it engage the mind. Um, but for me, one of my downfalls was that I undervalued the importance of, 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 of the pawns. Now, a great chess player, uh, a chess master, or a chess grandmaster, is someone who sees the value and the importance of every piece on the board, including the weakest, the pawns. That is, he values them, moves them carefully, um, and has a specific purpose in mind for maximizing their potential. Now, most of us can't contemplate the purposes of every piece on a chess board, only men with great minds, and I don't really know if anybody can quite do it, um, can contemplate the purpose and carefully move with intent and purpose every single piece on the board, but they value all the pieces. Well, I think about chess, and it blows my mind to think that when it comes to the chess grandmaster, um, there's only one, and that is, of course, the God of Scripture, who amazingly and mysteriously enough is able to work all things according to the counsel of his will. All of the pieces on the chessboard of history, he has a purpose for, he has a design for. He carefully moves them forward, not haphazardly, but with intention. Now, in one sense, we look at reality and the world around us, and we we see chaos, and we see disorder, and, and, and it's a chaos and disorder that is real, it's caused by sin, and it's caused by evil. But somehow, mysteriously, on the other side, God is able to bring order and has purpose amidst the confusion because he is and is the only one who is what we might call the the Grand Master. Now, you might think, what does this have to do with 1 Samuel chapter 16? Well, as I was meditating on this chapter for for some weeks now, that image of chess just kept coming to mind, Uh, both the Grand Master and how he chooses his pieces and moves his pieces, if we may think of the Lord as a, as a, as a grandmaster and we as his chess pieces. Now, there are limitations to that analogy. Uh, chess pieces don't talk, they don't pray, they don't make choices, whereas we do. But given that shortcoming, I think it is a good analogy for the, for the passage and also a good way to learn um, an analogy about life itself as to how God works, because in First Samuel 16, the grand chess master, God himself, moves a, a strategic piece onto the board of history. And that strategic piece has the name of David. To my knowledge, the only person in the entire Bible to be named David. He's exclusive. And in moving this piece on the board, he would change history. Uh, David's name is is mentioned um, over a thousand times in the Old Testament, uh, more frequently than the name of Moses and the name of Abraham. In, in the only name, by the way, that's, that's more um, frequent than his is the name of the Lord. Um, in terms of numbers of chapters that are given to narrating his life events, more space is given to David than any other figure in the Old Testament except for Moses. And there's a reason for that, because he plays a major part. That God has been unfolding his strategy for what we might call the grand chess game of redemption. Um, all the way from the beginning, and David has a, a piece in that, uh, something, a chess move, a chess strategy that, that really is spoken of back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, a verse that many of you have, have, are familiar with, in which the Lord, in, in the middle of, of this massive uh, moral and spiritual collapse when Adam and Eve first sinned against the Lord, That the Lord comes and in the very first curse of the Bible, a curse directed to the devil, the serpent, the enemy of of God's work, um, is embedded this this glimmer of hope, this this strategy that the Lord has, in which He says to the devil, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, speaking of Eve, and between your offspring, that is the offspring of the serpent, and her offspring. um, He. Notice it's a masculine person, singular. He shall bruise your head, the, bread of, uh, the head of the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. In the middle of this moral and spiritual collapse, there is this glimmer of hope embedded into a curse, in which he essentially says, Listen, at some point, an offspring of this woman that you deceived, a male is going to come, and he is going to bruise your head, and you're going to bruise his heel. bruise to a heel is not a mortal, fatal wound, but a a bruise to the head, the implication is, is. In other words, the very woman you deceived is going to, at some point, have a great, 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 great grandson, and he is going to turn the tide, and he's going to beat the evil one. And the Old Testament is very careful to follow that genealogy in line, which is why when you're reading in the Old Testament all these genealogies, they have a purpose. They're following this promise. And it's part of the key to the understanding of the whole of the Bible is it follows, it follows the, the line through from Adam to Seth to Noah to Abraham to Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons. And, and one of those sons being selected out by the name of Judah. And out of Judah eventually would come, 1 Samuel 16, David, to whom a very A special promise would be made that someday one of your heirs will sit on my throne forever. And you follow his sons all the way down. You make your way to Jesus, who is the he referred to in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So that by the time you get to the end of the Bible, you find things like this said in Revelation chapter 5, 5. Behold, speaking of Christ Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's the one. All, the entire fate of everything God created rested on one. And the Bible identifies him as Jesus, the son of David, who is introduced to us for the very first time in Samuel, right here in chapter 16. And, and, and it's, it, this, this chapter is, is more than just a, um, a historical Record of God choosing David and moving David, um, it is. It shows us the way in which God works in redemption, the way He works in our lives, and I believe there are two primary lessons to be learned from from um, how God chooses David and how God moves David as we're introduced to him for the very first time. Um, The the chapter may be broken into two. Um, Verses one through thirteen talks about God's choosing of his piece, let's call him a chess piece, and verses 14 through 23 talks about God's moving his piece into play as kind of the grandmaster. As I said, it teaches us how God works and how he continues to work and how he sees us in our lives and works in our lives. So taking those two pieces and trying to understand how God works and how he moves um, in David's life and, by extension, in in our life. Let's begin with the first part of this and see um, God's choice, God's choosing of his man his chess piece since the chapter's a little bit shorter I'm going to go ahead and read much of it the Lord said to Samuel this is the prophet how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel fill your horn with oil and, and go I'm just kind of telling him stop crying over f- spilt milk Saul's done and I'm moving on to somebody else I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, uh, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, notice the Lord is intentionally ambiguous. He doesn't tell him which son of Jesse is going to be chosen. And I believe this is by design. There's a lesson to be learned by the prophet and by extension by by us as well. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, Saul is now the sitting reigning king, "uh, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for, um, for me, in other words, for the Lord, whom I declare to you. Samuel did what, was, uh, what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Despite his grieving and despite the danger, he obeyed anyway um, to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, uh, do you come peaceably? And they said, He said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, that is, the sons of of Jesse and Jesse himself, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In short, the Lord tells the prophet to anoint another king. He has been called the kingmaker by many because he's, he, he was used to anoint King Saul and now King David. And I think that's probably an appropriate label. But he's told now, listen, I have rejected Saul. Now I want you to go to the sons of Jesse and I'll show you who, who's going to be my, my, my next king. A king for me that I have provided for myself. And Samuel gets there and calls Jesse and his sons. And he sees Eliab, who's the oldest and the firstborn. And the sense of the text is that he's impressed by, his, by his, his stature. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, that's the guy. Which, according to what the Lord says afterwards, he probably was a man of height and stature, just like Saul, the previous king, was. Samuel is apparently oppressed. He looks like a king type. He looks like the kind of person you'd want um, running the, 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 the campaign ads, the person you want to be seen on TV behind the microphone. He just looks the part of the king, tall, dark, and handsome. Now, if he was a chess piece, I think he would probably be one of the more powerful chess pieces, maybe a bishop or a rook or a knight, maybe even the, the queen, who is arguably the strongest uh, uh, chess piece on the board. But... The Lord, in a mild rebuke to the prophet, says, you see things differently than I see things. You look on the outward appearance of of a man. Measure him by by what you see with your eyes. That's not what I'm concerned about. That's not what I'm looking for. We make the same mistake oftentimes as the prophet here makes, of, of assessing a person's usefulness and value to the kingdom based upon what we can see and what we can measure. Be that the measure of a person's talent, musical, communication, writing style, um, the measure of a person's physical presence, the measure of a person's degrees they have acquired, how eloquent or not eloquent they are. And we oftentimes assign, uh, assign a usability factor or a value factor to God based upon those measurable things. And the Lord rebukes the prophet for measuring a man according to how man sees. The Lord says, I, I see something different. I'm looking for something different. I'm looking for the inner composition of the man's soul. The outward trappings of what he looks like on the outside or his accomplishments, that's not what interests me. So, as the story goes on, the other sons of Jesse come before Samuel, and each time the Lord says, nope, haven't chosen him, haven't chosen him, haven't chosen him, until the very last one passes by. He is counting, no more sons left. And the Lord told me it was going to be a son of Jesse. So, continuing on with the story, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are, are, are all of your sons here? <laughs> is there a mistake? And he said... There remains yet the youngest. Apparently, he didn't get the memo that he was supposed to be a part of the group. I mean, that's how insignificant he was, at least at this point, in the family life. He's out tending the sheep while the rest of the important sons are there. There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down. The idea is sit down to eat, the sacrificial meal, um, until he comes. So they got to wait until they fetch him from the, from the, from the sheep pen, uh, from the... From the pastures in verse 12, it says, And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the one the Lord chooses. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward to empower him for his, uh, for his ministry as king. And Samuel rose up and went, Now, contrary to human convention and to human expectation, the Lord does not choose the firstborn, but he chooses the lastborn. He does not choose the one who is physically impressive, but chooses the one who is, in terms of stature and height, physically unimpressive. Now, it does say here that David was ruddy, which means he was red, either red faced or red hair, probably a kind of a chocolate red because he was a Semitic man. Um, that he had beautiful eyes and that he was handsome, so he certainly wasn't an ugly man. But there's an absence of any statement or description of his stature and height, giving the sense that he was ordinary. He didn't look the part of an impressive physical character. He was not a, a model of a champion. And when you read chapter 17, the big fight between David and Goliath, you get the same sense. When Saul looks at him, he's like, wait, you can't go into battle. You're just a boy. When Goliath looks at him on the field, he says, am I a dog that you come up with sticks? He calls David a stick. I mean, that's the idea. It's ordinary, unimpressive, physically. But this is the one that the Lord chooses. And I think if you were to liken David to a chess piece The David would probably look a lot more like the ordinary pawn but in whose heart was the raging heart of God's king the kind of heart that would surrender in trust his entire life to the moving of the chess master and that's why the Lord chose him because he was a man of faith not of faithlessness and fear like Saul was a man surrendered like a pawn to a chess master, put me where you want me and I trust you. That God chose the unimpressive piece. That, of course, has has Jesus kind of written all over it. That God gravitates towards the pawns in his work. When Jesus was born, all the descriptions of him, he was born in a cave, probably a cave, You know, the only place to be laid was a feeding trough for animals. That his parents were poor. His dad was a blue-collar worker. Their sacrifices at the temple were the poorest of sacrifices. He grew up in the no-name town of of Nazareth. Uh, Isaiah would say of him, there's nothing in him to attract us to him. And yet, Jesus, like David, was somebody, though perfectly, submitted in trust to the chess master. To his father. To the point that he was willing to play the part that any good pawn would play. To sacrifice himself on the chessboard of history so as to bring the conquest. You know, I think about that. I think, you know, Satan moved in his key pieces and they were powerful pieces as far as the world is concerned. He had his queens and he had his knights and he had his bishops. He had, he had Pontius Pilate, the, the governor, the Roman governor. He had Caiaphas, the high priest in his back pocket. And he had King Herod, three of the most powerful people in that location in the world. And he moved them in so as to snuff out God's person, God's pawn. And when he finally came to the point where he killed the pawn, what he found was that he was against the ropes of a checkmate. That in bringing down the pawn, he lost all power over sin and death. And as a result of the resurrection, this pawn would become the chess master. And rule and reign over all things. Now he's the one moving the pieces. Now, what I want you to just notice is the lesson that defies our human cultural um, way of thinking. That God gravitates towards the weak. He gravitates towards the unimpressive to do his work. He gravitates towards the pawns. Paul couldn't say it any clearer than he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. Speaking of the way God works in the world, it is the reverse of the way humans work. We said God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. And here's why he chooses to work that way. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. You can't say, well, I was a bishop and I had certain kinds of strengths and powers and God used me, and it's because of my power and strength and my, my talent that, that I was used. Now, God can use those things, but he uses those things when a person knows that ultimately they mean nothing unless they're surrendered in trust to the one who works graciously through us. He gravitates to the pond. So, what that means is that we had to delight ourselves in, in actually being the pawns of Christ. Now, I know that most people don't like to play the part of a pawn. We use that in a very pejorative way, negative way. And to be sure, I don't want to be a pawn of another fallen human being, someone using me for their own private ends. That's, that's a negative thing. But, if, but, but, but if, if, if Christ is the chess master who loves us and is wise enough to move with care every one of his pieces... Well, then to be a pawn of Christ is the ultimate accolade. It's the ultimate celebration. It's, the, uh, it, it's worthy to be completely surrendered into the hand of Christ and, and say, put me where you want me. And I, I trust no matter how, how big of a part or small of a part that I play, you're, you're the chess master, and, and I trust that you'll, you'll use me. That's the kind of heart that the Lord looks for. Now, many of us in here believe the lie that unless you have some extraordinary attribute or gift or talent or mind, that your level of usefulness for the kingdom in God's hand is going to somehow be less or that it's tied to some, something innate about you. And that's a lie. The truth is the opposite. Is to recognize that, that God gravitates towards the ordinary people. Some of whom may not have any extraordinary gifts, but if they're willing to say and release and surrender and trust and say, I don't have really anything to offer you, but I know that your hand can take and use me by your grace. Well, then someday, you know, when our eyes see, when, when, when faith is no more, we will see how significant our lives were as the chess master moved us and used us, and all we were doing is surrendering ourselves in trust to him. That's an important lesson. It's good news. God chooses the ordinary. He chooses to use the weak. It's good news for us. I think most of us in here are probably pretty ordinary. Just to know, it's not about being strong. It's about being yielded to him in trust chess master that's the one david chose but but the but the story really isn't over of the chess master this is there's something else that's pretty pretty astounding as you look at the second part of this story david has now been anointed as king but and this is kind of assumed but he can't exactly walk into the court of king saul and say listen buddy you're fired like donald trump you're fired i'm your replacement What David ends up doing is he goes back to what he did before. In this part of the story, we find he goes back to shepherding, goes back to his sheep, going back to the pasture, watching these little dumb animals and keeping them protected from the wolves and feeding them, making sure they're taken care of and so forth. That's what he goes back to shepherding. But beginning in 14, we see how God starts to, as the chess master, move things and events to bring David into the direction or into the place of kingship. Verse 14. Now God's moving his peace into play. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The spirit was gone from Saul and now it was on David. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Um, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, "Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me." One of the young men answered, "Behold, I have a, um, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, um, <laughs> I like those big long words with the ite at the end, who is skillful in playing. A man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence." Um, and the Lord is with him. By the way, just as a side note, when it calls him a man of valor or a man of war, um, many commentators believe that they're referring to the family reputation rather than David, because David has not been tested in any kind of military context whatsoever. In other words, he comes from a good military family is the kind of idea. But that's the reputation of his family. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. He's back with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And and, and David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, at least initially he loved him greatly. Um, And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul refreshed, was refreshed, and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. I want you to notice something, that this harmful spirit from the Lord that torments Saul um, is the first thing that's said in this portion or this scene, and it's the last thing. Verse 14, it says there in that verse that Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord, tormented him. And then the way in which it ends, it refers again to this harmful spirit. In other words, it frames this scene, which means that the center of it um, is the solution to the problem. He's got to figure out a way to receive some kind of therapy for the fact that he's being tormented by an evil spirit from the Lord. Now, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, you're thinking, how in the world can an evil spirit, that's what the NIV and King James calls it, an evil spirit, not just a harmful spirit, how can it come from the Lord? I've had people in this congregation reading ahead, like zero in on that and say, "What? how can an evil spirit come from the Lord? Dan, could you comment on that, please, when you get there? And, um, and I will, but not today. Um, leave that for two weeks. I want to attempt the best reasoned explanation as to how an evil spirit can come from the Lord um, to torment Saul. But that's not this morning. What I do want to draw your attention to is how this evil spirit from the Lord works and functions in the story. Um, I believe that the Bible is is crystal clear on, on something, and that is that all evil spirits, intentions of evil men are still under the sovereign dominion of God. And that God when it comes to evil is capable of outwitting it and turning it against himself and bending it to actually carry out his plan. That's how God shows his superior wisdom over the foolish wisdom of the dark spiritual world and of evil. He overturns it. Well, as a result, think, think with me just for a second here. As a result of this evil spirit coming and tormenting Saul, he's got to find a solution, as many of us would, whether it's a physical ailment or a spiritual ailment. You're looking for relief. You're looking for some kind of therapy. Is there something to get me out of this? Well, somebody recommends, hey, how about music? Uh, you know, people have noted the uh, uh, therapeutic qualities of music for thousands of years, so let's find a musician that actually plays the lyre. So some guy comes up with that, that idea. And um, someone else says, hey, you know what? I happen to know a guy. Of all the thousands of people that live in Israel, I happen to know a guy who actually is really skillful at playing the liar. And his name is, surprise, surprise, David. Accidental? Absolutely not. And so he sends word. David's out there tending sheep, going back to doing what he's supposed to do. Open door. Hey, Saul wants you to come play your liar for him. Says, okay. David comes, and for whatever season in life, he begins playing his lyre for some kind of a stringed instrument for, for Saul. And it works. When he plays, the evil spirit leaves. And there's this connection between Saul and David, so much so that it says that he loved him greatly and made him his own personal armor-bearer. That is, he bore the weapons of the king. Now you can't help but notice how God has moved this shepherd toward kingship and into the court of the king himself where he would be exposed not only to kingly duties but also to to the arts of war. And there he would stay for a period of time until he made an enemy of, of, of King Saul. What I want you to notice is that, and this is one of the remarkable things about the life of David you'll see over and over again, he doesn't grasp at kingship. He trusts and waits for the Lord to move him there. He doesn't have to push himself onto the throne. God will make a way for him onto the throne. Meanwhile, we find him doing what God puts in his hands to do. Being a shepherd over sheep in one one season, and then playing a lyre as a musician with another season, and being an armor bearer in a different season. And that too, I think, is highly instructive for us. There's a lesson in this for us. We do not have to push ourselves into the will of God but we can wait and trust that God is moving us according to his will. He's the one who moves his chess pieces. We don't have to force his move. That, of course, doesn't hold true if you happen to be living in a place of sin in which you're outside the will of the Lord, you need to repent. But what it means is, this should be freeing and this should be good news, is that wherever you are in life, what you do, whether you're in a position of or a place of health or suffering, you can trust that right now that's where God's hand has placed you. And when it comes to the future, he'll move you and direct you in the way that you should go. You don't have to push yourself or force yourself into the will of God. David didn't have to. Happy being a shepherd, then God opened the door, and then he's a musician, and then he opens another door. He's armor-bearer, and it'll go all the way to the top. God will make it happen, because he is the one who's in charge. Now, how does that, like, really flush itself out for you and I? Well, there's, I've experienced it myself, and I've picked up on it from conversations that I've had with Christians, including many of you, some of you. Uh, case in point, this last Tuesday, we had a kind of a theological round table and, and I was talking to a group of ladies, and and one of them spoke up and said, "You know, I, I, I've been reading this um, this uh, biography of a, of a you know Christian missionary who went over to India and started some kind of an orphanage and blah blah blah, and um, and those kinds of stories. And I've read you know I've read the biographies of of people who have left the United States and and and, and gone down to the jungles of Ecuador, you know, and lost their lives, given up everything. Or uh, William Carey goes over to India, leaving everything and a crazy wife and losing kids, and you're you're left with this inspiring story of." Well, that's what it means to be a Christian. And maybe that's what I should be doing. And you're inspired at one level, but left feeling guilty on the other level. Here's the thing. As good and as inspiring as those stories are, they were never meant to devalue or diminish where God has already placed you and me. Who's, who's the chess master here? Are you in the wrong place if you're teaching in a classroom or if you're, you're, you're a barista in a coffee shop? Well, that's a pretty dim view of the sovereignty of God in my estimation, and I think in the Bible's estimation. It doesn't matter what I think. Now, I had to uh, put it a different way. I had a conversation with a, a retired school teacher who taught in the public school system for almost four decades Um, and I know his life pretty well. And he shared with me that when he was a young man, just out of Bible college, he felt a desire to be a missionary in China. That was early as a young man. Now I'm talking to him, and he's, he's after four decades of teaching in a public school classroom. He looks back with a sense of regret. Perhaps, maybe, what if... And I've thought about that conversation for a long time. And I also know his life. And I've thought about that conversation in light of what I know about him. That he has had students contact him decades after they were in his classroom to say, thank you. You're one of the few, few teachers I remember cared about me. And parents. And the effect that he had on faculty members. And then I look at his neighborhood. He's lived in the same neighborhood for 45 years. And he has had an opportunity to bring nearly every one of his immediate neighbors to the Lord Jesus Christ. If he had been in China, then those people, I'm not going to say they wouldn't have heard. But what I do want to say is he was exactly where God placed him. And he needed to live in the freedom without regret that I'm here and the Lord wants me here. He wants me to serve here in this classroom, teaching and impacting these kids and then living out my Christianity publicly with my neighbors and just caring, bringing meals when they're sick. He's exactly where the Lord wanted him to be and has made a difference because of that. I know we tend to be somewhat egotistical and we want to be the king or the queen or the bishop or the knight. But if we're willing to submit ourselves to the chess master, we'll let him determine what part we're going to play. And wherever he's put you, that's where you're supposed to be. And maybe it'll change over time. David was a shepherd, then a musician, and pretty soon he'll be king. But to trust that God is is, is sovereign over your life and he's leading and guiding you. And just simply to know that this is where I'm supposed to be. And I'm honoring him here. I want to be submitted to him here. I want to do my work hard with integrity. And I I want to honor his name by the way in which I shepherd and do music or or, or, or pour coffee. God moves us. And both of these lessons are good news for us. That God gravitates towards the ordinary who just trust him. And then to the trust that God's sovereign hand is shepherding your life and he, you don't have to push yourself into the will of God. You can trust you're already there. And just live for him. And watch what happens because that's how God is, 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 is unfolding this massive chess game of redemption. He's not looking for you to be spectacular. He's just looking for you to be simple and trust him and honor him wherever you are. That's, that's really the key to the Christian life. It's pretty simple. Trusting the chess master with the moves and the pieces and the choices. And, and we just respond in, in faith and, and trust. Now how does it you see yourself this morning in your job, in your health, or in your suffering? Are you surrendered in trust to Jesus who now controls all things? Just put me where you want me. I'm willing to do whatever it has to be. That really is, is, is what it looks for in the, in the heart. The heart of a surrendered trust. I trust Chess Master, and I'm going to honor him wherever he's placed me. I hope that that provides some level of freedom for you to see yourself as God sees you and, and that God is continuing his story. Uh, maybe the Bible is finished, but God's redemptive story is not. Our lives are every bit as important as the people named in the Bible because he is moving his pieces, and we are those pieces, and we live in a time where we're alive and we make the difference because we're surrendered to his hand. So I just pray that, that, that God would provide perspective through this chapter. David's life, how he worked through David's life, chose David, and how he moved. Let me pray for us. Father, I just am so thankful that you are on the throne and we are not.